If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let's go to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. I'm excited to preach these four sermons of Christmas. And what I have titled our series is Christmas 2015 is going to be a look at what I call the motley men of Christmas, the motley men of Christmas. Now, when I use that word motley, that means such a divergent group. We're going to look at Joseph. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at Herod, King Herod. The week after that, we're going to look at the shepherds and the wise men. And then on December 20th, we're going to look at the person of Jesus Christ himself. But today, we're going to look at the hope of Christmas. The hope of Christmas. And so my whole sermon in a sentence, the thing I want you to go away with is this, that when you think of Christmas, the hope of Christmas, everything we have heard from Romans chapter 8, from the Advent readings from John and passages where we lit this candle, from the songs we sang with joy to the world and stronger and all these things, I want you to realize number one about Christmas is God does the impossible. And I really want you to grab your minds around that, but I want you also to include, sandwiched together, that He includes mankind. He includes humanity. And that gives us great hope. And so today we're going to look at Joseph's obedience. Now before we do that, I want to, everybody just look up. I want to see the whites of your eyes for a second. I just want to go, Christmas. <laughs> Sometimes I wish I could just whip out a big mirror and go like that. And I mean, It's funny your, your facial expressions when, when something like, what comes to mind when you hear the word Christmas? What, what jumps to your mind? Are, do you want to make chestnuts roasting on an open fire? Or do you go, uh, Frosty the Snowman? Do you go there? No, no, okay, you don't go there, all right. Or what? maybe some of you really, Oh, holy night. Do you go to Handel's Messiah? Do you go to that kid's play? We have, we have backup music for the sermon, right? The kids are singing down there. What are your traditions of Christmas? Have they, unfortunately, now been busted up a little bit, maybe? You know, do you think fondly of Christmas? Why? Is it a family time? Is it a happy time for you? Is it a sad time? Is it a busy time? Is it a financially challenging, challenging time? Remember in the, the, the thing, you know, that your, your kid wants a, 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 a PlayStation that reads his mind and your daughter wants a, a doll that you make payments on, right? Is Christmas financially challenging? or So therefore, is it a stressful time for you? It is for most. I'm sure you've heard this before, but you know, right, the highest, the month of the highest suicides is January. The greatest amount of depression happens in the weeks after Christmas. Is that because we've turned it into a rat race? You know, hey, church, before we get all condescending and judgmental to the world, church, how do we do Christmas? I was teasing this, John and I were talking this, where the Puritans, the Puritans were a group of church fathers, were they right because their desire was to get rid of Christmas altogether. They were the ultimate combination of Scrooges, all right? They wanted to get rid of it altogether. I mean, after all, aren't we the ones that are supposed to be still trying to keep Christ in Christmas? Amen? Yeah, exactly. Amen. Amen. All right? So do you actually, or what do you actually know about Christmas? I mean, really, biblically speaking, as the video you just watched said to you, are you a Christmas nut? 
I love, oh yeah, okay, she's shaking her head at me, all right? I'm, I'm not even going to go there, all right? Are you nostalgic for Christmas? Do you just love it? Are you like Elf, you know that movie, Elf? You just love Christmas. Or are you a Scrooge? Maybe a cynic? Do you feel like us in the church? Can I ask you this, really, and be honest? Do you real so, feel sometimes like in the church we're losing the battle for Christmas? Like it's getting away from us? Do you find that we're making up reasons for what we do so we can justify Christmas? Like, for instance, why do we give gifts? Why do we give, Do we say, well, there was three wise men or three kings or God bless you, merry gentlemen or whatever it was, and so there, if they give gifts, we give, oh, is that true? Why do we have a Christmas tree? Well, do you say, well, the, it's an evergreen, so that means Jesus is ever, so it's eternal, so that's why we have a Christmas tree. Or do you even think about why we have a Why do we have the colors we do? Why is it the green and red? One of the things my wife, who, by the way, is a certifiable Christmas nut, all right? I love her. Even though she shook her head, I, I think I can still protect it up here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting cold. Is right, John. You, you know, like the, these things that we do, the colors that we have, Deb, where we're driving down and now with the new LED lights, if you don't know, like they have committed the ultimate betrayal of Christmas. They're not really green and red right? The right colors of Christmas. And my wife, no way. We're not going to be environmental for that. All right? So, you know, what, 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 are we making up spiritual reasons to justify the things we do? I mean, really? Now, hear me, all right? I am not saying, and I'm not even suggesting that we get rid of Christmas or that we throw away the trees and we stop giving the presents and we stop with the turkey dinners. Please don't ever stop with the turkey dinners. All right? For me, the highlight of Christmas is the turkey dinner. All right? I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that we need to know what the Bible actually says about the birth of Jesus. We really do. And what's important for us to know, and what's important for us to understand, and what's important for us to apply and cling to, and for us to be honest with each other and with our families. What is simply tradition that's meant to slow us down and think versus actually having some sort of spiritual significance or, or importance? And they are two separate things. There are some things that we do in our, in our family that is nothing more than Bray family Christmas traditions. But there's other things that we do, and it's based on God's Word. And I want our children to know the difference between the two. And we need to make sure we do that as a church. For Christians in the church, are you a traditionalist? Or in my studies this week, I made up a new word. Are you a newest? Are you a newest? you got to have something new. Do you like the season, or do you just kind of breeze through it, hoping that you survive it? But let me ask you this. Let me give you a third option. When was the last time you wondered at Christmas? You really wondered. Debbie and I were able to move our family here in January of last year. And believe it or not, we haven't had a chance to do it yet since we moved here because we moved here in the middle of the winter and getting through that. And then the truth is we didn't have the best summer, especially the best July. And then we were gone for almost all of August. And then when we got back, it was back to school and the church was ramping up and things like that. So we haven't gotten a chance to do something because for the last 15 years of our life, we lived in Prince Edward Island. And I love Prince Edward Island. 
the greens are lush and the hills are rolling, but there are no mountains and nothing rugged there. The biggest rock in Prince Edward Island is this big. All right? And it's a monument. They stuck a plaque on it. All right? I mean, there's just nothing there. It's just, if you've got to be in love with green or you don't love PEI. All right. So every year, every two years, our family made the pilgrimage back to Newfoundland to visit Deb's family and my extended family. And it was a family tradition on that holiday to make a pilgrimage to Mecca of Newfoundland, which is Signal Hill. We always went to Signal Hill and it was always for our entire family. There was no options. You couldn't miss it. All five of us went together. We went up on top of Signal Hill. We took pictures of our family. We visited Cabot Tower. We, we did all the things. You smelled the air. You looked for the icebergs. We did the whole trail all the way around with two cars because we weren't walking back up the thing, all right? So we parked the car on the top and parked the car on the bottom, did the little roundabout thing and then drove back up, all right? So I'm not crazy. Um, but, we, but I, it has never, ever happened that we didn't get up there. I mean, that was so normal for us. We can track the growing up of our children. We can track how they matured and how they became more independent from when they would cling to you as you walked around that trail to when we started wondering, are the boys still alive? Where are they? And they were climbing cliffs and hanging off things and all that kind of stuff. But I will tell you, it never failed. At least once in that little pilgrimage. I would stand and look out over the city of St. John's and I would marvel at the beauty of this city. And I would just be quiet. And I quite literally, to use an old Irish Newfoundland expression, I was gobsmacked at how wonderfully beautiful this city is. And God actually used it to feed that burden in my heart and my soul for this city how beautiful it was and how, how needy it was. But have you ever just wondered at things? How much of your Newfoundland heritage and tradition do you just take for granted? One of the great blessings for me at this church has been Brother Eugene. He's a walking encyclopedia of Newfoundland history. Anytime you want to know something, he can give you a story. He can tell you how that came to be. I love hanging out with him. I love listening to him tell me about that. It makes me proud to be Newfoundlander. I love that. But so often in my 40-odd years of life, I've taken being a Newfoundlander for granted. I've breezed through it. How often, church, do we do that with Christmas? Do we breeze through it? We assume it. We just think we know what it means. We have our little traditions, and we do it. So today, in a very short amount of time, as we've got the Lord's table to do as well, I want to take a journey with you. I want to start a journey of thinking about and wondering at and being both comforted by and challenged by a very familiar story. See, I came across a, a statement this week that's very familiar. It says, familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that before? Familiarity breeds contempt. Well, is that true of us in the church? Amen. What I think might be more accurate about us in the church, though, is this. Maybe familiarity breeds laziness. We've gotten lazy with the Bible. We've gotten lazy with Christmas. We've made all kinds of assumptions. When was the last time you went to God's Word and you really studied the birth of Jesus instead of just skimming by it or assuming upon it? That was the purpose. I have to tell you, folks, when Jennifer said that, it blessed my heart when you talked about that first video and you found your... I very deliberately picked the two videos that I picked. I talked to Steve Dye. I met with him. I said, this first video is because this is a busy church. And I want people to make sure they check and go, you know what? Maybe we're too busy. 
And then the second video was meant to shock us into the reality that a lot of things we do are based upon tradition, but do we really know what the Bible actually says? And that's not to be a bah humbug Scrooge thing. That's actually to make Christmas so much more richer and meaningful. When was the last time that you were deliberately still and thought about and slowed down and asked questions about celebrating Christmas as we celebrate being grounded in God's word. So will you stop right now and remind yourself that this event, Christmas, is so much more than a story. It's so much more than nostalgia. It's so much more than just traditions or family memories. It's so much more than cultural, uh, cultural pressures that seem Christian. Sam Storms, who I love to read, put it like this in this poem. He said, the word became flesh. God became human. The invisible became visible. The untouchable became, the untouchable became touchable. Eternal life experienced temporal death. The transcendent one descended and drew near. The unlimited became limited. The infinite became finite. The immutable became mutable. The unbreakable became fragile. The spirit became matter. Eternity entered time. The independent became dependent. The almighty became weak. The loved became hated. The exalted was humbled Glory was subjected to shame and fame turned to obscurity from inexpressible joy to tears of unimaginable grief from a throne to a cross. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. Over the next four weeks, I want to remind myself and remind you, remind us, that God, the one true God, He exists. He created that humanity fell, that God in an act of unimaginable love sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to the earth as a human being, the only human being ever born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, these words, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So I want you to realize that these words from Paul now find their home in Matthew 1. And I want us to discover, maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time for you, some truths, timeless and eternal, that God is going to gift to us as we celebrate with a clear understanding the birth of Jesus Christ. The fullness of time. That God wants us to know about Him and His Son and His Spirit and His Gospel and His plan for humanity. And it includes you and I. That's why there's hope in Christmas. And it includes you and I where God does the impossible. And maybe by thinking about Joseph today, you'll be filled with hope. All right, so let's go to Matthew chapter 1. And let's look at verses 18 
to 25. And I want you to, as I'm reading this, I want you to say, speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. I want today, let's learn from Joseph, okay? Let's learn from Joseph about Jesus. Let's allow God's word to speak to us and to change us and to transform us as we look for this hope of Christmas in Joseph's obedience. So, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew has just given us a genealogy, which, by the way, we're going to focus on on December the 20th. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That's the entire account of the birth of Jesus, according to Matthew. Here's how it happened. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, don't miss that, she, Mary, was found to be with child. Now, if you write in your Bible, underline or highlight, from the Holy Spirit. That's very important. All right? Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, some of your translations might say being a righteous man, he was a just and righteous man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, in Matthew's gospel, you'll find the word behold. It pops up all the time. Behold, that means take note of something. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Again, if you write in your Bible, highlight or underline that. Now, why did all this get said? Now it's all of a sudden Matthew says, let's take a time out. Let me give you a commercial from the narrative, all right? He says, all of this took place, everything he just said, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And so now he says, this didn't just randomly happen. This was planned because he quotes Isaiah 4, 7 and, and 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph, now we're back to the, to the scene again, Joseph woke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Now notice this, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And again, if you write in your Bible, here's another key important. And he, Joseph, called his name, that's Jesus, his, Jesus. He did, Joseph did. That's very, very important. All right, so let me run through this as we come to the table of the Lord. Number one, if you're taking notes, is the controversy that surrounds Joseph. All right, the controversy. Joseph, Matthew just jumps right in in verse 18. He says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way, and this is how it all went down. But you might be surprised to know that in your Bibles, that word birth is not the normal Greek word meaning birth the way if you have given birth what it means. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, if we were going to literally translate this, this is how it would say it in the English. Matthew literally says, the origin of Jesus is like this. The origin of Jesus is like this. And for you to appreciate the weight of this, basically, uh, Matthew tells us, when, when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, she was engaged. Now, you need to understand that engaged in a Jewish mind in the first century is very different than engaged in a Western mind in the 21st century. All right, Debbie and I are walking through this. Our oldest son, last Sunday, got engaged. All right, he's going to, Lord willing, get married next October. Now, that is not the same way as a Jewish engagement. 
because while he's engaged, and we've got an engaged couple with us and Mark and Christina, right? Now, they're together. We know they're together. We know the plan is to get married. We know that by being engaged, a ring was put on a finger, promises were made. Those promises were made of loyalty, fidelity, all of these types of things. But the reality is in our culture, an engagement can be broken with no thank you. Okay? But in a Jewish mind, that's not how it worked. In the Jewish day, in the first century, when you got betrothed, you were legally married. Contracts were signed and made. By this time, the bride, bridegroom had talked to both his father and the bride's father. Agreements had been made. Sometimes property has been exchanged. Preparations are in place. They have that betrothal period simply to allow the bridegroom to prep his home and estate for the new family that's about to be started. So when you're betrothed, you're legally married. But you didn't act like Mary because you still live separately. The bride lived with her family. The bridegroom went and got his, and then their wedding celebration, believe it or not, are you ready for this? Was a seven-day celebration. They got together, and the reception lasted for seven days. And finally, during the celebrations, the bridegroom would come unannounced and unexpectedly And he would bring his wedding party with him and he would come to get his bride and then he would bring his bride back to the place that he had prepared. And this was all miraculously, just wonderfully done in Jewish uh, history. And some Jews today still practice this type of wedding. Okay, to this day. But you'll notice something's wrong here because Mary's pregnant and Joseph's not the dad. All right? I want you to realize that. Now, you'll notice, though, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Look at that final phrase of verse 18, right? Notice what it says. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, you realize that phrase changes everything. That phrase changes everything. If this phrase is not there, all you're dealing with is a local scandal. That's all you've got. Like any gossip TV show on TV today, we would simply be voyeuristically peering into another young couple who gave into temptation and rocked two families in the community because somebody got pregnant and they weren't married. That's all that would be. But when you know that the Holy Spirit made her pregnant, so you see the controversy? An engaged woman is pregnant. Number two, Joseph is not the father. And number three, law and tradition demanded action. These are the things that are going on here in verses 18 and 19, all right? An engaged woman is pregnant, but the fact that Matthew says from the Holy Spirit changes everything. So instead of scandal, it's miraculous. Instead of controversy, it's condescending mercy. Instead of a tragic normal part of of 21st century life, here we have a once in human history divine intervention, This has never happened before. It has never happened since. What happened with Mary? When we come to Matthew 1, Mary is likely about four months pregnant. We know from Luke 1 that she spent three months with her cousin Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, which, by the way, if you're following this, means John the Baptist and Jesus were distant relatives. They were from the same family. All right? But notice what our passage says, okay? In Matthew 1.18, she was found to be pregnant. Now, I want you to understand, that doesn't mean she was hiding it. 
doesn't mean she was she was not uh, embarrassed by it or something like that. It was rather that she wasn't showing yet. And so when she comes back at four months plus pregnant, she's been through the first trimester. She's now well into her second trimester and she's showing. And we know that it wasn't because she was embarrassed or she was trying to hide it. Because if you read Luke 1 in Mary's Magnificat, she embraced it. She wasn't ashamed of what was God, God was doing. She wasn't hiding from it. Now, it doesn't mean that she, didn't underst- that she understood it all. It doesn't mean that for one second. How, after all, how many times does the Bible tell us that Mary pondered these things in her heart? Nor does it mean that it didn't have consequences. All right? Our passage tells us it did. Now, think about it. Now, wait, wait a second, all right? Now, that everybody's zone in again. Really think about this. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. See, it's one thing to get all nostalgic about this, but think about if this was your reality. You're pregnant, and God did it. You have never been with anybody. How do you think she felt? How do you think it went when she told Joseph? The man she's in love with, Joseph, I'm pregnant by God. How does that conversation go? How do you think it went when she told her parents? When she told her siblings, how do you think it went when Joseph tells his parents, Mom, Dad, Mary's pregnant, and I I didn't do it. I've never been with her. How do these conversations go? See, it's very easy for us to disassociate from the reality of life. How would that go in your family? If my son called me up and said that his fiancée was pregnant and said, but I didn't do it, I'd be like, yeah, sure you didn't do it. This is the reality of their world. This was controversial. How do you think this went? How was Joseph to know that Mary is pregnant and that she didn't cheat on him? How is he to know that? How was he to know that she wasn't raped or taken advantage of? How can you be pregnant and not have some sort of sexual act happen? But watch how Joseph handles the situation. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now I want you to notice point number two, the holy conception that amazes Joseph. See, there was a controversy that surrounded him. Now I want you to see the holy conception that amazes him. Okay, Matthew makes us aware of some key things about Joseph, but let me recap some things that maybe you haven't seen yet. Do you realize that in all of the Bible, Joseph is never recorded as saying a single word? He never says a word. He simply acts. He never talks according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Never says a single word. In fact, all we know about the Joseph is that he dreamed. And that when he got up, he did whatever his dream told him to do. He was a man of dreams. It's funny because in the Old Testament, there's another Joseph that was also a guy with dreams. So I don't know if there's a correlation there or not, but I thought that was kind of funny. But I want you to take, take our time and consider this. Matthew tells us Joseph was a righteous man. He was a just man. That sets Joseph apart. He wasn't your regular guy. He's a man who's trying to obey the law. He's trying to do what God requires of him. And Joseph is moved to act. Remember, she's pregnant. He's not the father. The law, the law demanded action. It does He's moved to act if he's going to obey the law. In the Old Testament, if this happens, you divorce her. If you're going to go by the letter of the law of the Old Testament, Mary is to be stoned. That's what it says. 
But notice Joseph acts with mercy. Now, at this point, we can only assume he doesn't believe Mary. When Mary says, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit, he doesn't believe her. He either assumes she's cheated on him or something has been done to her. Maybe she's afraid or too ashamed to talk about it. Maybe a Roman that was occupying the village took advantage of her or someone that was close to him did this and she's afraid to tell for, for fear. Whatever it is, whatever he thought, his love and compassion moved him to act according to God's law. He needed to get divorced. But he did so with mercy and patience and love and gentle. He, notice, he doesn't want vengeance. He doesn't want to embarrass her or shame her. He needed to do what was right, but he also wanted to do what was right by Mary. What character? What an example for us. Do you see Joseph's obedience here? But now look at what happens in verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Now, I don't want you to miss that. Joseph, son of David. That links the virgin conception to the Davidic genealogy back in verses 1 to 17 of Matthew. Notice in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Notice that, all right? In every other place it said, This guy was the father of this fella, and this guy was the father of this guy, and this guy was the father of this guy. But when you get down to the last of it in verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. It wasn't doesn't say right away, the father of Jesus. He says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. I want you to understand when, when that angel says, Jacob, son of David. See, Jesus has to come through the Davidic line. He must if he's going to be the king from David's loins. And I want you to admit, not, not see this. The Holy Spirit is the author of this. And yet Joseph has a role to play. So I want us to see something very important. Matthew and Luke, in fact, the entire Bible is concerned about the miraculous conception, not the virginity of Mary. Don't miss that. The focus is on what God did, not on who Mary is. And so today, if you lift up Mary, you, you, you're getting it wrong. The, the important part is who God is. This is what Mary herself talks about. And it's funny because if you study Greek mythology, if you study all of the religions and all of the philosophies and all the attempts of humanity and all of human history around the world to explain itself and to govern itself, you will find all kinds of parallels to this. But in every single one of them, fail none. Whenever a god comes to bring himself into humanity, it involves himself having some sort of sexual encounter with a human being. That's the common denominator. But that is not true of Jesus' gospel. That's not true. God it gives his dear son with such power and purity, with such love and compassion, that Mary is neither defiled nor spoiled. She is pure. She's a vessel of God, holy and protected and used. And this is so important because this is what sets Jesus apart from humanity, but also what gives him his identity with humanity because he's truly sinless. Now, I find it funny if you study hum human um, anthropology and history because it's funny that any time that you find a godlike figure trying to... Uh, 
meet up with a human being, usually they have to give up. They, they are usually very powerful, but emotionally very weak. All right, if you think about Hercules and you think about all these different things, yet Jesus gives up all of his power and his might and authority, but maintained perfect dignity and love and meekness and humility and selflessness. And in our passage, Matthew tells us that his name is Jesus. If you want to know what that means, it means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And you've got to realize that people have been looking for a Messiah to save them for all of time. When you get to Matthew, God has been silent for 400 years. People have been looking for them, looking for a Messiah. They've been begging for a Messiah. Go to your world today, listen to the news, read a newspaper, study the internet. Everybody is still looking for a Messiah, someone to heal them or feed them or someone to free them. But notice this Messiah comes to save his people from their sin. He's not a political revolutionary. He's not a social justice guy who's here to feed everybody. He's not here to heal everyone. He's to deal with our number one problem. Because we need to find out next, we find out that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Now, Matthew is very deliberate in how he writes his gospel. God with us starts in the first chapter of Matthew, in the middle of Matthew, and at the last of Matthew. All right? In Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is with us to save us from our sin. In Matthew chapter 18, remember that famous passage? How many times have you heard this prayer? Father, we thank you that where two or three are gathered together in your name, there you are in the midst of them. Have you heard that? Right? Okay, I love you, but that's not what the passage means. It's not a prayer passage. All right? It comes after discipline. It comes after when people aren't functioning right in the church, and Jesus wants to know that Jesus is with us to maintain the purity of his church. The next time God with us comes up in Matthew is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so Jesus is with us to empower our mission. So I want you to see this. Jesus says, I am with you to save you from your sin, then to transform you out of your sin, and then I'll be with you as you go and proclaim me to everyone in the world. Now, is that not awesome? Amen. All right. We'll wake you up sooner or later, all right? Now, I also, since we're doing this, all right, in just a couple of minutes, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28, the angel tells Joseph he shall save his people from their sin. At the Lord's table, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 26, 27, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, listen, for the forgiveness of of sins. See, I've had a lot of discussion. This is my first Christmas with Calvary Baptist Church. So I'm learning you as much as you're learning me. And so there was a discussion yesterday about traditions and what you do and who you do it and, and, and Advent candles and do you do it right and how you do it. And you know what? I Listen, if we're going to take our time and focus on Christ, I'm good to go. But here's a tradition I would like to be so bold and announce that we do from now on. On the first week of Advent, no matter where it falls, let's do the Lord's table as a church because he was born to die, amen? All right, this is a tradition I'd like to keep. However timing and scheduling works out, that we do the Lord's table on the first Sunday of Advent, every, so it reminds us that he came to forgive us of our sins, and then he, when he instituted this table, he said, I do this for the forgiveness of your sins. This is what is so good for us. And we see that at the Christmas is the beginning. 
The promises of the Old Testament are now here. The plan, the fullness of time has come. See, listen, this table of the Lord on this first advent, Jesus came to save us from our sin, which means we need saving. We need a Savior. The greatest gift we can receive is the gift of salvation. Now, notice the caregiver that Joseph becomes, all right, as we come to the end. Notice what Matthew tells us about Joseph, all right? Notice that the angel comes to him in a dream and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. He doesn't say, the angel doesn't say, don't be afraid. The angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So I want you to catch that. Don't be afraid to marry her. Joseph is told, your bride has been faithful. She's pure and loyal. She's in love with you. She's been true to you, but more importantly, she's been true to God. Can you imagine the relief of that? Can you imagine what kind of a sleep he woke up from that night? Can you imagine how refreshed he must have felt? What relief? But imagine this. Then he's told she is with child by the Holy Spirit. God is now speaking and working and breaking into humanity. What wonder. He didn't didn't get all nostalgic through that. I can tell you Joseph was never the same after that dream. This changed him forever. And notice, Joseph is to name Jesus. That's very significant. Joseph is from the line of David. It must be in Jewish tradition, the father names his son. And when the father names his son, then he's adopted as his son. So Joseph is to adopt Jesus as his own. Now notice this, Joseph obeyed. It says in, the, in our passage, he woke up and he did what the angel told him to do. He just obeyed. Remember the poem I read at the beginning from Sam Storms? For this reason, Matthew reveals that Jesus is from the line of David, but he's not from the flesh of David. Secondly, Jesus, Joseph followed through. He followed through, and then finally, Joseph is used by God to fulfill. He's used by God to fulfill. Joseph does two key things. Notice in our passage, it says that he did not know her until she had given birth. Don't miss that. Joseph is a just man. He protects Mary's purity. He respects and honors the holiness of God. He would not dare defile what God has made holy. But notice he names the Son of God. Jesus. He comes the legal father of Jesus, thus fulfilling scripture. That's why that passage is put in there in the middle of this. But never forget, don't forget the main point. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He shall save his people from their sin, which means the gospel is for and available to anyone, and we all need a savior. Do you get that? So it doesn't matter how good you think you are here this morning, and it doesn't matter how bad you think you are here this morning. We all need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior for you. And so Joseph, an ordinary guy, working an ordinary job, trying to live an ordinary life, but in the midst of chaos and even hopelessness and despair, God, God did the impossible He used a very ordinary man to father the one and only extraordinary son of God. When was the last time you wondered at that? When was the last time your emotions just got the better of you when you thought of how amazing God is? What can we learn from Joseph as we kick off Christmas and celebrate the Lord's table? Joseph should fill us with hope.
hope that God can, has, will, and will again do the impossible. Think of what Joseph faced, what he experienced. But by faith and trust and obedience, think of what he got to see and he got to experience and he got to receive the impossible. The disciples, remember in Matthew 19 when the rich young ruler comes and he wants all of God's stuff but not God? And so he says, sell everything you have, go and give it to the poor and come follow me. And he goes away sad. And, and Jesus says it's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to come to faith. And the disciples go, well, then jump on two can be saved. And what does Jesus say? Aha, with you, not, not all things are possible. But with God, nothing is impossible. God does the impossible. God becomes flesh. So, what do you learn from Joseph? Very quickly, number one, Joseph had great priorities. He had great priorities. He was a righteous man, the Bible tells us. That means he sought to obey God. When the angel finished speaking, Joseph awoke, believed, and did what the angel commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. His submission to God was as powerful and complete as that of Mary. What a tender picture of living faith, church. Mary and Joseph listened to God. They silenced their emotions of fear and shame and they obeyed the Lord. Why? Because they understand that God is with his people to save them. Because they were willing to listen to their Lord. Whatever people may think or say, they show us how to listen and how to obey the voice of God rather than our impulses. Isn't that a timely message for Christmas? Because how many of us will give in to our impulses instead of listening to God? Secondly, Joseph served God without it being legalistic. I want you to realize that. Joseph had a right to divorce Mary. As far as he knows, she's committed adultery. According to the law, he was not only allowed, but obligated. But Joseph shows us obedience with compassion, being right with humility. He didn't rub her nose in it. He didn't seek to sway everyone to his side. How about us? How about you? When you're wrong, but you know you're right, do you then go on a, a vendetta to prove it? Or are you willing to rest secure in who God is? And then finally, Joseph trusted God's word over his emotions. And I hope you get this one. When Joseph was told that Mary was pure and loyal and innocent, he trusted God and then her. Now, I want you to notice this, practically speaking, church. Did you notice that the Lord let Joseph struggle to solve his problem for a little bit? He, 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 he conjured up, maybe, I guess I need to get divorced. She's, something's gone wrong. He, he, he lets him struggle with this before he reveals his plan. And doesn't he often do that in our lives? Doesn't he do that? He lets us make plans and then reveals a better way. When this happens, we've got to change our plans, not make God come according to ours. We must test our plans and purposes against God's will as revealed in Scripture, in the counsel of the wise, and sometimes circumstances unfold in ways that suggest what God's will may be. And even plans that looks and look sound must be open to revision. So my final question for everybody is, will you be amazed by the wonder of the gospel this Christmas? Will you find your hope? Listen, I ask this. Have you ever been somewhere? Have you ever been at a recital or you've been to a movie or you've gone on that hike and you've hiked up Gross Morn? Some of you have gone to Gross Morn. You've done those big hikes. You've ever been present for the birth of a child or you've ever been at a wedding or you've been present when a child spoke their first words or took their first steps. Were you blown away at those moments? Did those moments, did those stick with you, those moments? 
that you treasure them, you cherish them. And, and, and when that's happening and that music is going or something, Deb, uh, Abby and I spent some time yesterday watching YouTube videos of people, choir singing Handel's Messiah. And I cannot listen to it. And I get, and of course, Abby thinks, because I was crying again as I was watching these videos. And, and I'm just overwhelmed. But have you ever been there and you just, you just want to close your eyes and you want to freeze time and you want to soak it all in, but then you're afraid to close your eyes, afraid that you'll miss one moment. Have you ever been there? When was the last time you were there like that with Christ? Or with Christmas? When that was more important, you were amazed. You see, listen, folks, Jesus was born to die. Jesus lived to die, but he died to conquer death, Satan, and sin. Why? So that we can live. That's the message of Christmas. Isaiah the prophet starts his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 1. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Notice, if you are willing and obedient. Will you ask God to open your eyes, your mind and your heart to the wonder of God's creation and plan? The same Jesus who came to die will one day come again to reign The question will always be, do you know him? Christmas is a time of hope because you can know him. He came for you, for me, like Joseph, if we will hear and trust and believe in and then follow. God will give you hope and peace and comfort and purpose and a calling. And will you come and see him and hear him and trust him? And that's what we're going to do at this table.